welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, your host, and I am particularly happy today to be joined by Joel Kotkin, whom I think is one of the most perceptive observers on what's happening in the United States uh, economically, uh, technologically, socially, uh, but connecting it to what is going on in, in Asia as well, particularly China. Uh, Joel is the author of 10 books, uh, the latest uh, just released, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. He is the Roger Hobbs Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange, California, and Executive Director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute. Uh, he's also the Executive Editor of NewGeography.com and contributes to J uh, City Journal, Daily Beast, Quillette, American Affairs, American Mind, uh, basically everywhere. Uh, so, Joel Kotkin, welcome to the Pacific Century. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm so glad, as I said, that, that you're here. Um, I started reading you because uh, uh, because I'm an American and, and you're talking about the fate of the country. But the more I read you, the more I saw that, number one, uh, you did which uh, something that we try to do uh, or that I try to do in the podcast, which, of course, is link what's happening abroad and link what's happening specifically in, in my case and in a lot of your writing to Asia to America, right? Ultimately, the point of this broadcast is really about the United States and what, what our relations with Asia mean, what they mean for us, how we should be dealing with them. Uh, you talk about that not from the political perspective, but from both a comparative perspective in terms of, uh, of urban uh, geography and, uh, and economics, um, but also from the, the de developmental perspective in a sense, it's not, it's not the policy perspective say, but it's a development of where we're going, what's happening here, what's happening there, and how the two are intertwined. So there's so much to, to talk about. And, and, and even though we are an Asia-focused podcast, we're going to talk about how this affects America. We'll get into your, uh, we'll get into your talks about um, uh, China, some of your recent work. But let me start with the new book. Uh, again, the book is Neo, um, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Um, so when I taught Japanese history uh, as a pre-modern historian at Yale, I taught nothing but feudalism. That's all I taught, uh, the real feudalism, the good old days. Um, and, and there were many who would say that, you know, Japan was much more feudal than Europe ever was. I mean, it was a truly feudal society for centuries more, upon centuries. And more, you know, obviously more uniform. Europe was a bigger place with lots of variation. Exactly. So, and and you now, however are saying that we have the coming of neo-feudalism uh, in the United States and in the West more broadly. What is that? What Can you sum it up for us? What's happening? What do we face? What are the dangers? Well, there, there are several things happening at the same time. Um, one is uh, when you start to look at what's happening on a global level, and particularly in Western countries, we're, we're in an era of pretty much long-term economic stagnation. You know, there are increases and decreases but most of those have benefited a relatively small number of people, um, and particularly in, um, in terms of where the wealth is. Um, and for the large percentage of the population, um, in not just here, but in other countries, things have gotten tougher. Um, people's views of the future are, are worse. Uh, young people um, are not doing as well as their parents. That's, that's uh, amazing. We, you know, this is after, you know, really centuries, you know, obviously interrupted by various catastrophes uh, of upward mobility, including in a place like Japan. I also think that the Chinese uh, upward mobility that was part of the great neoliberal era, that's beginning to fade. Um, and I think we're, we're going to see, you know, more decline there. So you've got economic stagnation, you've got demographic stagnation, which is um, huge. I think I think in the next 20 to 30 years, it's going to finally dawn upon our um, leaders that our problem may not be too many people, but not enough young people. I think that's where we're headed. Um, you know, and Japan- And that's clearly, right, Japan, that's what they face now. And Japan's in it and we're gonna, but the difference is I would argue that Japanese society, Chinese is a little bit more unstable, but the Japanese society, you know, A, the Japanese did a brilliant thing. They got rich before they got old. So they've got the money to maintain something of their welfare state. 
Um, is Japan going to be a, a great shaper of the future? Probably not. You know, it's, you know, I think um, I forget who wrote about this as being the, the next, you know, sort of like a, a Switzerland or a, a, a Venice, a place of extraordinarily extraordinary ca uh, capacity, but no mode of force. It's, mm -hmm. it's just going to be there. Um, and then the last part, which is much more difficult to categorize, which is the the uh, triumph of ideology or th theology over um, a more cautious, more, uh, can I say humbler approach that, you know, this idea of certainty, of knowing everything and on, there's only this point of view, and that's the only one that's allowed. And you know, some of it is we've allowed a bunch of of extraordinarily wealthy um, nerds to take control of the society. These are nerds who know, in for the most part, no history, no literature, have no. I mean, I've I've talked to these people sometimes about the Constitution, and you know, they're willing to get rid of the Constitution tomorrow. You know, as a, I did an interview with one of um, a guy who's a friend of both uh, Musk and Zuckerberg, and they are so, they said, you have to understand, these, these people see no future for um, uh, human beings on earth. Uh, Zuckerberg wants us to lose ourselves in the metaverse, and Musk wants to take us off the planet. I mean, so, you know. <laughs> so, so, Joel, give us the bad news then. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is what, what I think is, is so, uh, prescient about what you're doing well, prescient we'll, we'll see if it's prescient i think it's prescient mm -hmm. what is so disturbing about what you're doing though is that is that as you've as you've outlined this you know this illiberalism obviously long-term secular stagnation demographic decline um but you're cutting to the core the the core of what we think it is quite frankly to be an american which is that there is opportunity and the argument yes. that i get in the book is that you better think twice well, I think what's clearly happening is that the opportunity horizon is shrinking. Hmm. Um, now, part now here's the positive side of it, just from an American point of view. The great thing about America is we we don't we, we don't have internal passports, and people can reinvent themselves. I was last month. I've been both to Texas and to Florida, and I'm hardly, you know, an advocate of either um, in the sense that I think. I don't, I'm not about to move to either place because um, mm -hmm. I'm an old guy who bought his first house in California for $150,000. Oh my uh, God. Don't, don't <laughs> say that out loud. That's going to just, people are going to start storming, like storming your house here. Well, they may, but I'm not going to give them my address. But anyway, <laughs> but, 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 but uh, unless uh, the Democratic Party decides. They think they, they can find it. Trust me. Yeah, we've I'm learned sure that. They, I, I'm sure they could. But 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 I but I think that that what what we're seeing is you know that that the middle class is being marginalized all over the world, and um and the and, and in the U.S. what that means is you know the U.S. is a unique country. It's not a racial country. You know no matter what either the right or left says, it's a country based on ideas that evolve over time and 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 fortunately have become more inclusive over time so um but but the problem is what do you do when a society that is not held together by blood ties common religion historic you know uh historical traditions you know if you go to a a, a village in england you'll you might see roman ruins and then medieval ruins and then Victorian um, buildings, and you'll see different layers and a history where people can say, yes, my family has lived in this place for a long time. That's less the case in America. America is about movement. Now, the positive thing, and I was mentioning Florida and Texas, is Americans are reinventing themselves. Now, what I mourn more than anything, perhaps, is when California was the place that people went. When you wanted to reinvent yourself, it didn't matter. You know, I remember uh, going uh, going to a, a party with uh, of people in the New York law firm, and um, you know, everyone was so concerned. Well, what school did you go to? Did you go to this one? Did you go to that one? I remember. I think uh, 
Ben Bradley probably thought I, when I was at the Post, probably thought I was a savage because I went to Berkeley and not to Harvard. Um, well, but, you have clearly a California accent. <laughs> where, where are you from originally? In New York. Right. And you, so you made that migration yourself. Right. So, so that, so when I came to California in 1971. Wow. Um, wow. Nobody left. When you, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, people left for job opportunities. There was always a group that would go to Manhattan. There was a group that would go to Washington because they were interested in politics. Um, the, uh, um, the, the more human parts probably went to uh, New York in pursuit of greed. But, but anyway, and, and, and culture, I mean, New York is a great city. But, but, the, but the reality is that Americans are reinventing themselves. So I'm walking along Clearwater, Florida and the main street of Clearwater, Florida, and I'm noticing it's not a bunch of old folks. There's a bunch of young folks. And they are in many ways like the people who came to LA in the 70s or in and, and 80s. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I are watching uh, when, you know, the, the Jerry Buss um, documentary and that whole period of the 80s when LA, anything was possible. We were becoming this global city. Um, we were doing, new, you know, finding new ways of organizing societies. And um, I thought, we, you know, it was a really great place. But I think what's happened is um, that California has become too expensive, too regulated. If you're not part of the sort of tech or Hollywood elite, you really don't have much role here at all. Um, and so those people are now going to Texas and they're going, and I, I notice it in funny ways, like, I, like in Texas, I, I'm very interested in the behavior of Hispanics and African-Americans that I run into. Um, they feel much more a part of those societies where particularly among a large parts of those people in California, they're very marginal. They, mm. they, you know, they're the, you know, Silicon Valley is basically, you know, imported indentured servants from Asia and, 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 a, and a few American nerds, you know. Um, I think that, that, that app, the, the promising thing is there is still an opportunity horizon. It just isn't in California, it isn't in New York. It's, it's, um, in, mm -hmm. yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned, and I'm sure everyone has has anecdotes um, of that. I mean, I have I have two. One on the Florida side, which is a two young families in our neighborhood. Our neighbors just moved down to Florida, and others are following. Uh, you know, and these, like you said, these are not the old people. When I was growing up in Chicago, everyone was going out to Sarasota, and you know, because we would go to the to the Gulf Coast, not the Atlantic Coast. That was for the East Coasters, right? Right. Uh, and it was well, it was old folks, and my grandparents, you know, would go down every every winter. You'd winter down right. there. And so I've got these young neighbors, two families just in the past couple of months have, have moved uh, and, and more are, are planning on moving. And on the California side, much like you, and I think probably about the same age, um, uh, a very close cousin of mine was dropped off in LA, Chicago boy, dropped off in LA after Vietnam by the US Navy, never left, never left for 50 years until last summer. And after 50 years, he and his native Southern Californian wife moved to North Carolina. They retired and they said, it's too expensive and the quality of life. They lived in the Valley, San Fernando Valley, the quality of life from when they moved there has just cratered and having visited them, I, I, I saw it. So this, everyone has these stories, I'm sure this is everywhere it's happening. But what really strikes me as, as disturbing about your work is in, in the system of feudalism, of course, you have the owners of land, you have uh, those who sort of sit on the fringes, you know, the clerisy, the, the scribes, the scholars, the, the quasi-professionals of which you and I are probably that class. Uh, and then you have the serfs and you write a lot about this. You write about the, the you know, the feudalization of the serfs in America, that lack of, of opportunity. Is this, has this ever happened before in, in our country? Not, not, in, not in our country. I mean, we've obviously had periods of Great consolidation. The Gilded Age would probably be the best parallel um, where we had, you know, the danger that we were moving towards sort of a cartel or Zaibatsu state, cartel being German, Zaibatsu being Japanese, in which there would be these sort of incredible combinations. And, and to our credit, we, you know, we didn't get gut that, but we did restrain it. 
and um, and I think that, uh, uh, and then obviously um, in the period after the Second World War, there was an enormous rise of the middle class. And that, a lot of that was working class people moving up. Um, today, we're in a situation where the chances of working class people moving up and like buying a house is so minimal. I mean, think about this uh, also that this in quote working class is now a lot of it is educated or has gone to school. You know, we're producing twice as many BAs as we're producing jobs for BAs. And anyone who teaches is aware that the high schools are not exactly um, churning out incredibly knowledgeable people. They, you know, some of the, their tech skills are sometimes quite good. Um, and I find with my students presentation skills, but they've been robbed by the education establishment of all the great joys of reading, of, of, uh, uh, of confronting the classics. I mean, thank God my younger daughter goes to the Orange County School of the Arts as she's graduating, but, uh, you know, fortunately they studied Shakespeare, but, you know, I wonder what's going to happen to the next generation. Are they, is Shakespeare too sexist, racist, whatever you want to call it? Is it too hard to understand? So what we're doing is, and this, this is where there is an interesting parallel. In the early part of the Middle Ages, now I don't, you know, Japan's a different situation. I'll defer to you, you on that. But in, in, in the, at the early stages, what we really call the Dark Ages, because, you know, there's infinite debates over medievalism, how long did it last? And, but the initial period, right after the fall of the empire. Now, just so you know, my background, I had seven years of Latin. Um, oh. And uh, uh, you know, classical history was always and remains a big inter uh, interest of mine. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that um, in the initial centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a, a conscious attempt, even by the small literate class, to separate from the classical tradition. The classical tradition was seen as pagan and evil and all these other things. Well, we're going through something like that now in which we have the, the uh, and by the way, the, uh, the universities um, have been at the center of this, obviously. Uh, we're systematically undermining our belief in our own culture, our own civilization. Um, and, so, and as in the case of the, um, of, of the dark ages, we um, are substituting a religion in its place. And that religion is, you know, uh, it's not just one religion that there's, but they, they intersect, you know, the, um, uh, the, you know, the gender fluidity um, plus uh, the, uh, uh, the whole idea of systemic racism um, and climate change, all of them, have this sort of very much medieval feeling of the apocalypse is coming and human evilness is why this happens. As opposed to the understanding that I think a good liberal historian would have, and I'm still consider myself to be politically uh, more of a, a lib you know, liberal, not a, not a libertarian at all. Um, but one of the big problems is that, that you know, you can't, you, you know, if, if you dissent from this belief, just like in the Middle Ages, you are immediately sent into what I call the, the, the digital gulag. Um, and like, I even find that like the, the, because let's say I may not share their views on several issues, liberals sometimes won't even deal with my arguments, even though my book, I consider to be more Marxist than conservative. Um, uh oh, don't say that. Well, I think it's true. I think I, I, I don't know, know how Hoover's going to feel about that one. We have to well, scrap the whole podcast. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's great. I mean, this Marxist, not in the sense that, I mean, look, I think Marx was a brilliant um, analyst of right. capital society. Um, and some of his predictions were true. His suggestions of where to go were terrible and how his work was taken was terrible. But, you know, I studied Marxism under Michael Harrington. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of value there. So, but, but what, what happened today is even somebody who is maybe a conservative or moderate social Democrat, but if I don't believe in racial quotas and I don't believe in 
renewable tomorrow, net zero tomorrow. And if I don't believe um, that that you know sex is 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 something that uh, um, is a matter of identity and not biology, well, I, you know, I guess I, I'm in the I'm in the digital gulag. I I I've reached the I, I've violated it. And even though sometimes this religion is contradictory in, in many ways, you can't have that discussion. You know, as a friend of mine said, you know, if you want to talk about these issues, you have as much chance of discussing these issues in the progressive world as you would have had to discuss the, the nature of Christ in the fifth century in Rome. And actually, and to another of your points, um, we, we have another uh, adoption from the, uh, uh, well, certainly from the Byzantine era, and, and which is iconoclasm, literally yes. the tearing down of idols, the tearing that, you know, the toppling of statues, the destruction of a physical remembrance of, of the past in terms of people. Right. And I think that, and this is where I think some of the Asian influence is important. Now, I don't think it's, I think we may end up looking somewhat like Japan um, and our industrial structure is increasingly what I would call zaibatsuized. Yeah, I want words, to get to that in a minute or two. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, so we're adopting um, things also from Asia, but the biggest and most important influence is China um, and the system that China's developing, which we are in many ways paralleling uh, in, in, in many ways. Uh, the only difference is in America, power still resides among the very rich as opposed to in China where power exists in the very rich but at the sufferance of the cadres. Well, and as, as, uh, as you pointed out and others have pointed out, we're seeing an increasing overlap, right? Between the, 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 the rich who are now becoming the, the top levels of the cadres uh, in, in the party, right? They're becoming party members uh, at numbers that you never would have seen. Uh, of course, they weren't rich before, but um, but those who were in who are engaged in the economic sphere, those who are engaged as uh, as what we would call business uh, people, um, they would not have been party members uh, certainly to these numbers in the past. And now that party is changing, right? And and the, and then there's the confluence, which is in some ways reminiscent of, of Japan in the sense that government officials mix with. You know, particularly when the you know the old descent from heaven, uh, yeah, in, in into the the, uh, the right. It's called amakudari, which is right. coming down from heaven for former senior bureaucrats who then take top positions at at corporate. But of course, that happens here too. Well, and it's and it's happening more. And what we're seeing is, for instance, there was the um, recent testimony by a bunch of defense and intelligence people defending the tech oligarchy and saying we can't. We can't break that up. It turns out that most of them get paid, by, you know, are part of organizations that that are paid for. The the inf influence of the um, of the tech oligarchs is so extensive now, and I don't think I don't know if we can ever really do much about it. I mean. And, and this, the parallel with feudalism is just like the, the feudal, the initial feudal lords were the strongest by barbarian on the block was the was the feudal lord. That was basically it. And the same thing is true in today. There was this huge field, and I give them credit. They saw something, you know, why the movie studios didn't see streaming, why, why did the bookstores wait around for Jeff Bezos to destroy them? Um, why didn't they get into these markets? I give them all the credit in the world for, for seizing an opportunity. Um, but now, like the aristocratic lords, that maybe they have created some degree of, of stability. But on the other hand, they, are, they now see themselves as capable and, and deserving of directing society. So the parallel with, with medievalism is quite strong. And then there's the clerisy, which is, this sort of quasi-religious group, which turns on a dime. The, you know, an old journalist, both old and a journalist, um, I am horrified by the transformation of papers that I've worked for into essentially, in the old days, we would have called it mimeographing, um, but, yeah. you know, basically copying the talking points almost immediately. 
I mean, I don't know who comes first, the, the DNC or NPR. It's hard to know. Um, and th that bothers me. Now, by the way, I have not much more support for Fox News. Fox News is also, I don't necessarily trust what they do. Um, but let me ask you then if I can, because I wanted to just before we got too far away from it, the um, the because you were talking about how the feudal lords, uh, today's feudal lords, the techno lords have, of course, decided that they know best and therefore they should just they should run society as opposed to and shape society as opposed to just in the old days being the ones who would give us everything we needed. Maybe we wouldn't have as much choice, but they didn't tell us how necessarily to live our lives today. Right. They're telling us how to live our lives. How does that how does that connect with your concept economically of zybotization? Because I do okay. want to shift over to the Asia side, sure. uh, the, what you've drawn, the connections and, and others. I mean, I've done it as well between the elites and China. Um, but then if you said that that's the model that we're beginning to pace, what does that mean for us? So let's start with the zybotization, if we could, a little bit. Great illustrations of that. Um, you know, when the when the tech companies were tech companies, I mean, their job was basically to take existing technology and improve it to improve productivity and things like that. But increasingly, the oligarchs are they want control of everything. I mean, it's no longer just the best widget or the fastest speed. It's also we're going to control the culture through buying up um you know, the, the means of communication, but then also in, into the business of supplying the content. Now, by the way, they're not particularly good at this. Um, as an old Hollywood guy, I would say uh, um, they're pretty shitty at it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know um, I mean, one of the reasons I think they have problems is that they they don't program for, for anyone but their own group. Um, and therefore they leave out 50, 60% of the population. Uh, but the but but the bottom line is there's no alternative. Where is the where is the conservative uh, or even mainstream uh, centrist version of Amazon Studios or 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 Netflix? And there's there's no such alternative. Um, then you look at where they're going. Google is, and others are they're big into medical. They're going they they're they're moving into space. In some cases, they're buying up what's left of the legacy media. Um, so, you know, in a funny way, during the Gilded Age, we may have had to pay an economic price to John D. Rockefeller and the other robber barons, but they didn't, they didn't deign to really teach us how to think. They didn't, try, they didn't, or they didn't have the means to control it. You know, in early 20th century New York, you might've had 40 or 50 newspapers in different languages with everything from, you know, far left to far right. Um, and um, today you, you only have two or three. And if you control those two or three, um, you can sort of define how people are. So what, the, so what I think we're seeing is this kind of, you know, just like in Japan, the Zaibatsu will be, they'll make cars, they'll, they'll make steel, they'll, they'll do electronics, they'll, They'll have a bank, you know, I mean, the various. And then, of course, now we're seeing they're also going to dominate the space era because um, nobody else has the money. I right. mean, that's the end of the day. The the tech oligarchs, even though they may be having a little bit of a rough time in the, you know, in the recession that's coming, the the, the reality is they have the money, the capacity, the ability to go to the markets and do pretty much whatever they want. Well, Zaibatsus and oligarchs have been broken up, right? We had obviously Standard Oil was broken up in, right. in 1911. Um, the Zaibatsu were broken up after the war, 1945. And yes, they did sort of uh, uh, reform into what we call today the Keiretsu, which the, again, they're, right. they're, they're relatively integrated, but not in the same way. They don't have the same central holding companies right. that really determined um, that there was a lockstep uh, sort of a closed system of production that would support, as you said, banking, steel, mining, uh, electronics. It would be, it would be everything. Um, uh, you know, I think 
the 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 tech revolution happened so quickly as as we all know i mean right. uh, you're a little bit older than i am i mean i'm old enough to remember a largely techish free certainly today's style of tech free life and then before we knew it we can't this is our life so um you know the fact that facebook owns all of the competing modes of communication you know from whatsapp to pinterest to instagram or I, i'm assuming i don't pay attention to that stuff try to stay away from it um can it be broken up? Will it be broken up? Is that a way? And then what, but what is the lesson that the tech lords are getting from China where there is great political control over the system? So they've got a, there's a, there's a, how do they navigate that balance? And can the people, because again, just to back up for one sec, your point, as you've been writing, is that we do not have a competition or a struggle between the oligarchs and the people. We have, a, we have a struggle between the oligarchs themselves for who's going to control the whole pie. Right. The people are out of it. That's the, in, in, that's the feudalization of the American people. Well, you, you can use another good Japanese term, daimyo. Daimyo, the daimyo, the feudal <laughs> lords are fighting each other. It's not that it's the people versus the lords, which again, right. Japan has, has actually never been the case. Um, so first, let me ask you, do you see any chance that the government steps in to break up these huge uh, concentrations of power. Secondly, how do they then manage that political uh, competition, that pol the, the political threat, and what are they learning from China? Well, I think there, there are two different things. One, in terms of, of breaking it up, I'm not sure what the best approach would be. I certainly think that, that you do not, I do not think Facebook buying Instagram and WhatsApp was, should have been allowed. I think these could have created their own uh, ecosystems, if you will, and, and then become a, a, a place for developers to sell their products. When you have 80, 90% market share, there's not going to be much opportunity for people at the bottom. So, so you know, how you do it, that's something that, you know, as President Obama would say, is beyond my pay grade. But, but, uh, but, but I do think that um, that people are, um, you know, they 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 don't like where this is going. I mean, when you know, nothing annoys me more than I go I go to go to a, a website and they say, well, check in through Google or through Facebook. Yeah. Like I said, yeah. Why don't I? Why don't you just give me your URL? I can go directly to you. Right. Um. So so I think that 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 these uh this has something has to be done. Now the lesson of China may be the exact opposite. What the CIA and intelligence people are doing, and you know, some I put intelligence in quotes because they're usually wrong, right? But <laughs> but the the but but the reality is the, the you know that that the, what they're really saying is China has this model of central control, domination by a few companies. Um, and to compete against it, we have to create our own authoritarian system. Now, there'll still be some constitutional guarantees and, you know, we'll at least go through the charade of, of elections and things like that. But in, in, in reality, our system and the Chinese system are not that, you know, increasingly not that different. Once you have a small group of people with control over things, they're going to be autocratic because that's the nature of humanity. Like, I don't think, you know, um, you know, Sergey Brin at Google, who used to say, um, don't be evil, ended up running a company that is, I would argue, pretty evil <laughs> at, at this stage of the game, a company that talks about control of speech. So in China, the control of speech comes from the cadre. In America, the control of speech um, basically comes from a bunch of progressive activists, mostly in the Bay Area, that, that's, <laughs> that, you know, and a bunch of uh, unhinged, you know, informed by unhinged professors, which are not rare. Um, so, mm -hmm. Go ahead, please. Oh, no, oh, I, sorry, just, sorry. I, did, I just think there were some parallels there. Yeah, so the parallels is what obviously extremely concerning. I mean, at some point, We'll, we'll figure out if, so my son uh, is, uh, uh, you know, in his early 20s, um, you know, does he view all this differently than we do? Because you and I grew up in a very different system, meaning as we get to those generations, you said, you know, the education, what's going to happen in the next generation of education? Well, the next generation of kids are going to be taught by this generation of teachers, but meaning 
they're going to be taught by this generation of students who become the teachers. And if they're miseducated, then then there's really no hope, right? Because it's just, you get to a point where no one remember, you're, you're, you're talking about sort of, you know, Irish monks at the end of the, the Roman empire who remembers what is to be taught. Same thing with what is a free society look like, or what is a free exchange of information? All of what you just said, we're going to get to a point where no one born remembers anything before it. So how do you recover it? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, first of all, the, the, the reason I wrote the book is to say, this is where we're at. Now, if you want to keep going this way, don't challenge it. If you want to, to change it. And, I, and, and, and my appeal was not to conservatives or, or uh, you know, liberals, but across the board. I, <laughs> I think most, most liberals I know are kind of shocked by what they're seeing. Um, actually, a lot of the opposition to what's going on on campus is coming from traditional liberals. What worries me is not so much the views of people, but fear. And this, again, is mm -hmm. very medieval. Mm -hmm. I'm a young, for whatever bizarre reason, I'm a young, moderate to conservative or even traditional liberal, and I want a career in teaching English. You better be careful. You better be careful what you say, what, you know, if if you express an opinion that that is considered to be heretical, and I use that term right. in the sense, um, you're you're going to lose your job. You're going to get a a cadre of militant students or militant former students protesting. I can tell you, everybody who teaches, at least in, in that I see, everybody is sort of like, you know, you walk on eggshells. You know, you're afraid if I say something now. And can we agree, by the way, that that is un-American? Can we just that agree? Is, Should it even be controversial that the idea that people are scared to speak is un-American as we understand it? Of course it is. It's, it's also anti-Western European. Right. It, right. It, it, it's, uh, you know, and actually in some ways the Europeans are, are re resisting this a little better than we are, frankly. Um, so... I, I think that 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 we really need to figure out um, some kind of response that unites um, parts of the conservative world and parts of the liberal world. Um, it uh, the unfortunate tendency, it seems to me, is when as the left has become more autocratic, the right has been becoming more autocratic. I I just finished an article on that very yeah because because they feel their back is to the wall and and you know if you have nowhere left to go you've got to fight back. But you know what, Joel, I think that probably uh, a lot of listeners at this point are saying this is fascinating. Where's Asia for us? Because you know we do with this sort of an Asia oriented right 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 right. I guess not sort of it's it is actually an Asia oriented one. Although this has been an incredibly important conversation. So I, what, I, what I'd like to do in our last minutes, if I can, is shift over to this article that you recently wrote uh, for uh, American Mind called Red Dusk, which looks at, from your perspective as, again, an urban geographer and a demographer and a, and a very perceptive uh, observer of, of economics, the, the uh, threats to China's future. And uh, I, I wrote a book in 2017 called The End of the Asian Century, a mm. large chunk of which was devoted directly to these questions of weaknesses in China. But it's actually become very controversial, quite frankly. There, And I wouldn't say it's necessarily China boosters versus China critics. It's just there are there are a lot of, of uh, there's a lot of contention over the idea of whether um, China simply is far more resilient than we give it credit for. Uh, that the party is more resilient, even with current missteps, um, that uh, the 30-plus the years of growth that China's witnessed, um, while it may not have gotten it to the point of Japan, like you said before, Japan got rich before it got old, nonetheless have given it much more of a cushion to survive. And we see that in, in its championing the leading, the cutting edge technologies that you think are so important. Things like AI, machine learning, trying to become a chip maker. Um, you, you talk about how Apple is now uh, going to be sourcing some of its chips from China. So 
enough said on that. Let me ask you then to, to talk about your perspective on why you think, as I certainly have shared for a long time, the sense that uh, China has a lot of real risks and threats ahead of it, or are we just sort of hoping? Well, here's the way I would like to constitute it. There's nothing inevitable about the Chinese century. Um, China has enormous weaknesses, um, demographic among others. Um, right. It, it's a uniracial state, which, you know, I, I'm, I, I think hybrids are, are really a good thing. Um, I think, you know, that's what makes America strong. You know, I look at my students and I would say at least a quarter are from mixed race marriages. Um, and every year I see more and more of that. Um, I, I think that uh, we have this entrepreneurial strength, which, which frankly, I think the oligarchs are, are basically threatening because, you know, it's harder to, to create a real startup. You know, the startups are created almost as, as sometimes simply to be bought by one of the mm -hmm. oligarchs. They're not, the, the idea, when I used to report on Silicon Valley in the 80s, you know, Everybody wanted to build a big company. Now, a lot of times they ended up selling the company, but they had that ambition. So I think that if we look at what our strengths are, the demographic strengths, what our societal strengths are, um, that um, that we we you know we have a younger you know we're going to have a younger population than China, and uh, you know particularly if we continue some immigration. Um, and we have a system that is encouraging people to, to invest in it. You take a look at, at uh, what's happening now with Europeans. They're not, they're saying investing in China may not be that attractive. You know, mm -hmm. there's a price you pay, not to the Wall Street people, because they don't believe in anything, but but you know, even though they like to say they do. But the reality is if you're gonna build something. I've talked to people, for instance, at Mercedes, and they'll say, we have to be very careful in China because we have no rights. They mm -hmm. can decide tomorrow that I've got to give you this patent or that patent. Now, some companies like Apple act like they're independent republics, and they can simply cut their own deal. But in the long run, um, that's not going to work. But if we try to duplicate the kind of autocratic structures of, that China has, we're going to be squandering our natural advantages um, as we're doing right now, for instance, in energy, where we actually are a very energy rich country in the midst of an energy shortage. And what are we doing? We're, we're buying oil from Saudi Arabia, um, if, if they'll give it to us. Um, and we're allowing China, we're creating a system where China can build coal plants while we shut down natural gas plants. I mean, the, so we have to have a strategy that says America is a resource rich country with, with a relatively vibrant de demographic, so that's certainly threatened, with a constitutional system that makes it much more attractive for investors, both domestic and foreign. Um, and, um, and we have um, a, a history of entrepreneurship. And by the way, we are seeing an entrepreneurial revival um, at the grassroots level. That's very, very encouraging. Um, but America can only win by being America. Now, that doesn't mean that you give in to the, you know, uh, to the, you know, the market fundamentalists who say, well, then we, we shouldn't ban anything from China. No, if the other side is using slave, you know, slave labor and, 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 and won't allow your products in, you have to put restrictions on them. You know, do, do we need a, an industrial policy against the Netherlands? I don't think so. But but China is a, it is a threat and you have to deal with it. So you can be an entrepreneur, but also understand the importance of, of protecting the country uh, at the same time. And I think what's happened is our corporate elites are, are essentially not interested in the welfare of the country themselves, that, you know, basically, and they're looking... Uh, for how to get quick profits. And very often, a authoritarian system allows them the access to cheap profits. They don't have to worry about labor unrest. They don't have to worry, although I'm not so sure how much longer that's going to last. But, but 
you know, you don't worry about labor unrest. You don't worry that somebody's going to put a Yelp review saying, you know, the LA City Hall is 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 filled with imbeciles. That doesn't, you know, you, you can't post that in China, you know. So, so I, you know, there's there is a great desire, I think, on part of not just the corporate world, but in the clerisy, to create a Mandarin-like state, a state where experts who are designated tell us what to think, what's right, what's wrong. Um, and there are many people in academia who love that kind of system because it, it empowers them. Uh, they, they become the people who, who get to tell us what we can think, what we can't think. Um, and, um, and, and if we do that, if we follow the Chinese model, I think we, we will lose. I think that's not how we win. America wins by being American. Well, that's a great, that's a great uplifting after what I would say was not a lot of uplifting (laughs) thoughts, uh, but, but very important and perceptive thoughts, but a really great uplifting, um, uh, summation, um, you know, we don't, I think as much on the podcast, try to talk about how all this that's going on in, in other countries affects America, but your point about things that we don't want to see, I think it would be fun uh, at another time to talk to you a little bit about Japan, more about Japan and what Japan's done right in terms of its uh, its narrowing of certain areas of competition and opportunity, but also a leveling within society so that you don't have as many of the, you certainly don't have the type of, uh, you know, the wealth disparities that cause problems. And we can, we could get into that another time, but here's where I want to finish up, Joel. I want to, I want to ask you two questions because you've written a lot about, and you've talked about it to us today, um, America uh, reinventing itself. You've you've mentioned Florida, you've mentioned Texas. Those are the obvious ones that come up, but I want to ask you two questions and they get to some of your writings. First is, Uh, You note that people are moving away from the big cities. We certainly see that here on the East Coast. It's just a flood down South. Obviously, you see it out of California. Number one question, or first question, not number one, first question is, for a younger person, where are the really, in your view, the really attractive places to go to, to be a little bit ahead of the curve, right? You're you're probably not talking Phoenix. You're probably not talking, um, you know, Bozeman. Those are places that have been well discovered, right? Where is it that they're going to have opportunity and and some of these opportunities you've been talking about? That would be number one. Number two, counterintuitively, for those who don't want to give up on the California dream, where in California could you move to to have some type of life style like the ones that that maybe you had when you moved there 50 50 years ago? Well, it, it, it has to, you have to take it from a demographic perspective, you know, for the you know, one of the things that's really funny is when you read about California, um, for instance, uh, people um, you know who's leaving California. It's not the o- older people; it's the younger people, yeah. and those are also the people who are not, basically not coming. Um, where are the best places? I think there are a bunch of them that are that are emerging. Um, in, for instance, I would look at Arizona, Tucson. Yeah. Cheaper, less congested, a little bit uh, less um, of a furnace. Um, beautiful country nearby. A very nice university, University of Arizona, uh, which is not quite the gargantua that Arizona State is. Um, but that would be a place I would look at. Fayetteville, Arkansas, is another town that's doing very well. Um, you know, obviously Nashville's gotten quite a bit of attention, but. Des Moines. And I'll tell you the place that I think is really coming on big time is Columbus. Wow. Oh, really? Well, um, Intel's putting $20 billion there. They're oh, talking yeah, right. about putting in a hundred. Um, it's the biggest deal, I think, in the history of the semiconductor industry. And they've said, look, this is when you think about what Columbus has. So it, it's got a huge university. It's a state capital. It's got a growing immigrant population. It already had some industry and now it's really going gangbusters. And it's got an Appalachian um, periphery that is absolutely set for for development. There's just no doubt about it. So I would look at those areas as being really, um, and I'm sure there are are many others 
I'm in California. That's a harder story. Uh, if you're a young couple and you want to own a house, you got to look at the interior. You, the, the coast is, um, you might live in the coast when you're in your 20s, um, but if you're going to settle down, it's going to be the pretty much the interior. Um, it could be parts of, of even LA County and Orange County that are, that are uh, on the eastern edge of those counties. But I would say it'd be mostly in the interior. And then what's really interesting is a lot of um, tech workers are moving further out um, Central Valley, but even beyond the Central Valley into the motherload country. Um, I think there, there may be some movement to the Central Coast. But the problem in California is that the regulatory regime is so difficult um, and property prices are even high in the interior relative to the rest of the country. So it's it's a little bit harder. The, the, the real challenge in California is can you make enough of a living in a place you can afford? And right. that's difficult. Well, Joel, this has been, uh, well, let's be honest, this has been a little bit more about America today than Asia, but that is okay. That, that has actually been uh, a fascinating look at where we are. Uh, but also related and tied to what's happening in China, our dependence on China, um, the relations we have, um, very interesting uh, comparisons with, with Japan. As I said, it'd be interesting to talk a little bit uh, more about that. But again, really, for those who, uh, and I'm assuming most of the, the listeners uh, know you and your work, but if you haven't, um, to, it's joelkotkin.com. So J-O-E-L-K-O-T-K-I-N.com, where you uh, archive uh, almost all of your work. Um, the, the new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, um, but really just, you know, one of the most uh, insightful observers of what's happening today. And I'm really glad you could take time to join us. It was my pleasure. So for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin uh, in a very special America edition. Uh, but next time we will see you and we will return back out to the Pacific. This podcast Bye-bye. is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.